to the HodgePodge podcast. I'm your host as always, D Hodge, but you guys already know that on Instagram and Twitter at I am Mr. Dylan Hodge. Wherever you're listening, please give a five-star review and write a little comment. That helps us grow in the podcast realm. I can actually see the audience gain, and that helps us because now we can send out to people and be like, hey, look, we have this many people that's listening, and they're like, okay, yes, no, maybe so, I don't know. So that's what sending in feedback does for for me, for podcasts, for music, for apps, stuff like that. Hope you guys had a great uh, New Year's. Um, I'm doing recording this, doing this on New Year's Eve because I have to work New Year's Day and Saturday, and this is going to be my only time to get it done. So that's where I'm at. Uh, hope you guys popped a lot of fireworks. If you do that, if you drink, I hope you drank. And if you smoke pot, I hope you smoked pot. I hope you did whatever you feel comfortable doing. I, I hope that's what comes of it. So, yeah. Great New Year's. I know you guys had a great Christmas. Thanks for the views on the top 10 video games of the decade and the top 5 albums and songs of the year. Those were some great uh, downloads and hits. And so... Yeah, I really do appreciate it. I'm back. I know I'm not the best. I've uh, had some medical issues. Ah, not too bad. I had my ear. Um, I've had some trouble with my ears, man. And, and, and the pain was going down the right side of my jaw. And my face would just swell up. It turns out I have a hole in my eardrum. And so they said it's small enough for it to heal on its own. So I got some antibiotics. And I'm taking Tylenol and ibuprofen. And stuff like that. Um, not around the clock, just whenever I need it. So, yeah. That's been my New Year's. Hope you guys are good. Without further ado, let's go over right now to the introduction for today's guest on the podcast. Yo, yo, this is X-Chase Money, and you are listening to the Hodge Podge Podcast. All right, on the podcast today, we've got Zach Ward. Zach Ward is a Canadian and American actor. He is mostly known for his roles as Farkas in the... What some people call the best Christmas movie ever, A Christmas Story, and Dave Scoyle on Fox's Titus. So he's going to be talking about being a kid actor and finally making the move to L.A. from Canada. He tells a fascinating story about himself and the luck of a business card. That's a fantastic story. Um, You're also going to hear what Zach thinks about having a backup if your initial dream or plan fails. And of course... You know he's going to talk about his time on A Christmas Story and the impact that it had on his career. So without further ado, let's go over right now to my guest, Zach Ward. (laughs) Scott Farkas. Scott Farkas. What a rotten name. We were trapped. There he stood between us and the alley. Scott Farkas staring out at us with his yellow eyes. He had yellow eyes, so help me, God, yellow eyes. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, you got it, bud. I really, can you I hear really, me okay. I can hear you just fine. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's rock and roll, baby. Cool, man. Look, I really, I really do appreciate you coming on here. Really, honestly. All right, well, let's do something magical. <laughs> hey, man, that's what I'm here for. We're just here for a good chat. I know, I know you get tired of uh, answering the same questions on, uh, on every, on every uh, interview you do. So that's, that's kind of not my, uh, it's kind of not my, uh, what I want to do here. I just want to have a good chat, get to know the real Zach Ward on a personal level. Well, get prepared for disappointment. 
right. <laughs> nah, you're not that disappointing, are you? You're not that boring of a person, huh? Wait and see, my friend. Wait and see. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All right. So I guess I just introduced you real quick. Um, as you can tell, we're not professional, as you can tell. Um, so with me right now is Zach Ward. He uh, is mostly known for playing the bully Farkas in A Christmas Story and Dave on Fox's Titus. He's also had roles in the movies Almost Famous, one of my favorite movies of all time, Transformers, Freddy vs. Jason, and more. He is also the co-founder of a film production company called Grip Filmworks, uh, CEO of Global Sports Financial Exchange Incorporated. And you've had numerous, numerous uh, guest roles on TV shows, which I'm not going to name because that's going to take all night. So, yeah. Hello. Nice to meet everybody. Welcome Hopefully to the show. Having a wonderful season. So, uh, how is uh, the, the, the nasty year of 2020 treating you? Um, without swearing too much, I, I'm, it's not a good one. It's a hard year for everybody, I'm sure. And I know that a lot of people are going through more difficult times than I am, so I won't want to whine. Um, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to things getting better. Yeah, man. And swear all you want, curse all you want, say whatever you want. This is a uh, bias free podcast. So if you feel the if you feel the need to curse, go ahead, just let it rip. Cool. <laughs> so I wanted one of the big questions that I want to ask you is what's the difference in or one of the biggest differences in filming in Canada versus filming in the United States? Uh, the reason people film originally in Canada is because of tax incentives. Um, so if you have a one American dollar is worth a dollar 25 Canadian. So you make money on the exchange of money up uh, to the dollar. Also, <clears throat> when you shoot in other states or other countries, those countries give you a tax incentive, meaning that if, <clears throat> if you went to Canada with a million dollar budget, your million dollars will turn into 1.25 for easy exchange rate. Then also when you were shooting in the province of Ontario, sure. the province of Ontario would give you roughly about anywhere from 25 to 35% tax incentive on your spend. So if you spent a million dollars in the province of Ontario, they give you back anywhere from a quarter million to $350,000. So again, you just saved another $350,000 and you saved 25% off the top. So the million dollar um, budget is really only costing you about $400,000, four fifty. So you've saved a lot of money right there. So there's lots of reasons to shoot in both countries or in multiple states. I, I'm very interested. What kind of skeleton is that or a skull you have right there on your, over your, uh, your right shoulder? Uh, that's a mask uh, from a movie that I made called Restoration that I directed. And if you check out the film, it's on Amazon Prime. Okay. It is not the one with Robert Downey Jr. There is a restoration with Robert Downey Jr. And then there is a restoration that I directed. The one I directed has that mask. And the one with Robert Downey Jr. is not the one I did. You mentioned directing. And I know acting and producing and directing are hard jobs, but would you much rather take one over the other? There, 
it's an interesting question I get asked a lot and they're, they're very different processes. So <clears throat> it's like saying, do you like ice cream? Do you like ice cream? Right, yeah. No, do you like ice cream? Yes. Do you like steak? If it's cooked right, but yes. Okay, so the perfect ice cream and the perfect steak, which one would you pick? Because the problem is they're both so different that they okay. satisfy different flavors. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah, 100%, I understand completely. So yeah, it's a very different experience um, and you get so much from both of them and you lose so much from both of them. As an actor, um, your job is to stay focused on the character and make that all consuming so that it can be realistic for the audience so that you're not involved in any of the other decision-making processes because you need to focus on your acting. Um, so you lose control over the rest of the film. But as a director, you have to be in charge of the rest of the movie and you don't get to focus on the small little details the same way an actor does in some ways. So there's, you're always giving and taking and giving and taking. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about kind of starting over because I was doing some research on your, on your, on your life. And so you start in a movie in Toronto or a show called Boogie's Dreams. You then left for Los Angeles. And you mentioned that you started all over again. I don't want to know the story. I just want to know your mentality behind, oh, crap. Now I'm going to have to start all over again in this new place that I've already been. But you know what I mean? Is Does is it make sense? Yeah, kind of. Um, the TV show is called Boogie's Diner. It was a <clears throat> Saved by the Bell style live, uh, live um, sick, uh, syndicated TV show. It was horrible, uh, but a great learning experience. Um, and then, like you said, I moved out to California at the age of 25. And now I was a tiny, tiny, tiny fish in a giant pond and I had to start over again. Um, it was really hard. It was really hard to try and do those things that I had done years before so remember i started acting at the age of 10 not that i was ever a big star i never have been um am not now but i was respected in toronto and and worked my way up to be in the top echelon of actors of my age category and look right mm. um and then moving to los angeles having to start over again where people didn't know who i was did not care um it was really hard. It was really hard. And it just took getting up and doing it every day and trying to be smarter and faster and more aggressive than the next guy. Um, it was hard, man. It was really hard. So, so when you filmed a Christmas story, you didn't live in California. You live, you were in Canada, right? Is that, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was raised in Canada. I lived in Canada off and on, but basically I was a Canadian citizen up okay. until I moved out uh, to Los Angeles when I was 25. So in 1995, I moved from Canada to Los Angeles. And I bet that was 
besides the mentality of having to start over, but you're in a whole different city besides in a whole a whole new world essentially because Canada and Los Angeles. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's two very, very, very different places. Totally different. And um, but yeah, it was very hard to get to know people, get to make friends, uh, create any sort of long-term relationships. Um, I'd say that's true about any city that you move to, but California in particular is a very unfriendly city. Um, the reason it's so unfriendly is because there's always a, well, there used to be always a ton of young people coming into the town wanting to become actors and actresses, et cetera, et cetera, and then leaving. So they're there for a very short period of time. They're very egotistical. They're very self-centered. And then they realize that their dreams are a lie and it's never going to happen for them. And then they fuck off and go home. And so it creates a very transient environment. Um, and that's one level of Los Angeles. There's another level of Los Angeles, which is the people who have been here for a long time, the people who are behind the camera, the people who are not so, you know, the fresh new faces that are replaceable every single day, the people who do the real work, um, they do have a community. Uh, and then as an actor, you slowly have to earn your way into that community. So yeah, be, getting moving to California was very, very difficult. Fortunately, I got to move from Toronto uh, where I live, I had my own place and everything to move out to Los Angeles uh, and lived with my dad. And I was doing construction with my father when I first moved out here. So I had that basis where I was doing construction and building houses and stuff like that. And then going to auditions and just trying to get work. I, I, I understand completely about the construction. That's what my dad, my dad's a construction he builds different things right now he's building bridges and at one time he built houses and then basically just build whatever people needed essentially so that is hard work a lot of people don't understand what hard work is until they've been on like a construction site because it's like yeah. it's, you're, you're in 95 degree weather you're the sun yeah. there's there's oh, no it, shade you're on a patch of I dirt wish, <laughs> i wish 95 bro. i wish my, my albino ass was in 112 degree weather on top of roofs, just raging sunburn, just brutal. And you're right, like that's one of the reasons why um, I think as an actor, I, 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 never, I never understood those actors who would get to set and then complain. Like honestly, yeah. the hardest part of acting is getting the job. And then you have this really great job uh, that pays, pretty well, especially if you're doing a union job and you, no one's punching you in the face. No one's hitting you with a hammer. Yeah. You know, uh, you're not going to cut your toe off. Uh, you work at a construction site. You get up at four o'clock in the morning, five, you hit the site by six thirty-seven. Yep. You're working all day till five 30. You are dipped in dog shit. You go to bed at eight thirty-nine. You're done, bro. <laughs> Your life is just garbage, and, and you smell bad. Like I did plumbing, man. Like yeah. In one of my first jobs with my dad was doing a lot of sewage stuff where I was cleaning out the uh, waste lines of houses. 
and I was literally like dipped in human fecal matter for Christ's sake. Like I'm yeah. cleaning out waistlines and I would have to shower myself out, off outside the, the house because I was covered in shit. Like I'm not exaggerating. Yeah, it no. was disgusting. And that doesn't happen on a film set. Like, I'm sorry, your worst day on a film set is still better than your best day cleaning out shit from a sewer pipe. Just going to put it out there. So I never complained about that. I heard someone describe the acting business as a, you show up, say a few words and you go home. And it's like, if, if that's true. And then it's because, you know, my dad was also did all the plumbing and I was also in all the fecal matter doing all that stuff. What was some of the worst things or one of the worst thing that you had to do that you just like, we're not going to do it. I'm one of those as an actor no, or just like in, you, like in the construction jobs. Right. I, I'm sorry. Yes. I, I realized that I realized I did mess that up. Uh, no, no, there was nothing I never did in construction. There's nothing I never did. Uh, it didn't matter what it was. That was, the family business. And so it, it was my job to help my dad out and get it done. Um, acting wise, the only thing I've ever refused to do is when I'm dealing with um, stunts or I'm dealing with um, loads, half loads or full loads in a, a running blanks in a gun. Uh, I, I am a stickler when it comes to safety because you put a half load with no projectile in it in a in a weapon um, and then a rock accidentally gets in the end and you have a bullet and you can kill somebody. So the only thing I, I ever will step away from on set is lack of safety. Um, to answer your earlier question, some people say you show up and say a few lines and you go home. Yeah, sometimes it's that easy. Sometimes it absolutely is. Um, but it also matters what you bring to it. Cause I guess you could also say singing is just opening your mouth and letting sound come out oh. or painting a picture is just putting paint on a brush and slapping it on canvas. But I wouldn't say it's that simple. Would you? No, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't. So you, I mean, if I slap a canvas with some paint, I'm pretty sure it's going to look like ass, but yeah. if a good artist does it, it's going to look fantastic. So it all depends upon the amount of effort and craftsmanship you put into what you what you do. I understand because I'm I, like when I see Nashville and I see a bunch of the they air quote wannabe singers and they come and go. Do you ever get jaded of seeing that? Because I know I do a lot of the times where it's just like you kind of you got to have that mentality state of I'm doing this or else. And it's just like, you got to have that. I'm doing this mind state because there's not going to be an or else. I, and I know a lot of people aren't like that because I'm, I'm that type of person where it's like, I don't want to, you know, like when, when parents say, I, I agree, you want to go be an actor, but you need to have something just in case that fails, something to fall back on. And it's like, I had the mentality of, if I have something to fall back on, then that makes me not try harder or as hard as the thing that I really want to do. Because I know if I fail, then I'm going to have that thing to fall back on. And it's like, that's going to, you know, it's, it's one of those weird things. I know what you're saying. I, I know what you're saying, but I, I think, hmm. Hmm. 
I know what you're saying because I know there's a certain desperate passion in that position. There's sort of a, what you're trying to elicit is a last ditch effort of adrenaline and uh, aggressiveness that'll push you over the hump of your own mediocrity to make something happen. Because if you don't, you're gonna drown and die. And I guess I, I see where some people see it that way. Um, at the same time, I think that's also short-sighted because nobody is 20 years old for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So you have to have plans on what you're going to do. Um, and having a fallback isn't necessarily having a fallback. So, for example, if I was smart when I was young and I made some type of money, which I did, um, I would have bought property. But see, my mom didn't really know anything about real estate. And I grew up in Canada. My father was in California. So my mom didn't know anything about real estate. But what if I had done all these commercials and TV shows as a teenager in high school and I had turned around and bought property or I had bought stocks, right? Is that giving up or is that creating another income stream? Sure. I think I it's I, you see I, what I'm saying? Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, absolutely. And and the reality is, you know, the whole legend of Hollywood is built to prey upon the dreams of the innocent because young people, and how old are you? I'm 22. Okay, I'm 51. So young people see things in terms of their own life experience. They don't really have a length of experience to draw upon. Um, so that they have an all or nothing mentality because they haven't dealt with the nothing side. I mean, you're 22. So that means that you're, you became a man between the ages of 14 and 18, kind of mm -hmm. in your mind. And you're still working on that now. You're not the man you're gonna be when you're 40 not the man you're going to be when you're 30, but you're becoming that man, but you've never lost everything and had to start again. Am I correct? Yes. Right. Which is great. See, I don't think you should live in fear, but I also don't think you should live in stupid. Yeah. You know, when I drive my car, I put on a seatbelt, but I don't crash into other cars on purpose. Yeah. So, Having plans does not make you lazy. Having plans makes you smart, but it, it depends upon how much you dedicate your time to something. Because just wanting something to happen is not the same thing as making it happen. Right. Uh, I meet people all the time who come up to me um, and say, hey, I want to move to California and I want to go to film school. This happens at conventions all the time. And they'll say, I got to be a filmmaker. I'm like, really? And they go, yeah, I want to go to film school in, in California. And they'll have their parents with them. And uh, I'll ask them if they're rich. And the parents will say, no, we are not rich. I said, okay, because film school is going to cost you anywhere from thirty dollars to $60,000 a year, mm. not including eating and living. So let's just say, let's say 40. So in four years, 
that's going to be $160,000. You know what, you know what job you get when you get out of film school? You work for me as a PA and you get me coffee. Because that's your education. Or on the flip side, um, you could stay here in Buckfuck small town and you could stay living with your parents and you could buy some type of camera or you could use your cell phone, get a good lens. You could sign up, subscribe for Premiere Pro, Adobe, Creative Cloud, get the Premiere Pro, $20 a month. And you could go film your own shit and learn how to edit. Go on lynda.com, go on to skillshare.com because they're posting your own stuff. And then maybe go get a job working for a production company and doing stuff. Because if you really need to be a filmmaker, you'll do it right where you are right now, as opposed to trying to get mommy and daddy to pay for it. Because if you really want it, you'll go do it. Or do you just really want an excuse to wait to become an adult? Right. Yeah. So I think having a fallback plan, I don't think, here's the thing is, I don't think it's a fallback plan. I think that's an old style mentality. If you look at it, there's maybe, let's say there's, let's say there's a million SAG members, Screen Actors Guild members and AFTRA members. And out of a million of them, maybe there's 20,000 who are working full time. And out of 20,000, let's say there's maybe 3,000, 10,000 who are famous, recognizable. And out of that 10,000, there's maybe 2,000 that make over a million dollars a year. And out of that 2,000, maybe there's 400 who make over $20 million a year. And out of that 200, 400, Maybe there's a hundred that make more than $50 million a year. What's your chances? Why are you doing it? I think the smart math is doing what you love, being incredibly passionate about it, and also realizing that that mentality translates to other things. You can be successful in doing podcasts and upsell that maybe do some marketing as well and maybe do a have a real estate broker's license or maybe whatever the fuck it is you want to do yeah because if you made a lot of money like you know joe rogan makes a lot of money doing podcasts you're not joe rogan but i guarantee you that joe rogan doesn't take all his money and sleeps on it he makes his money work for him right doing something that he likes I don't know what that is. I have no idea, but I would assume that he's not ashamed of that. You know, Joe Rogan was a standard comedian. So yeah, Joe Rogan was a standard comedian who got into TV shows, didn't really like him, got into MMA. Cause that was another thing that he was really good at. Did like the, what's that challenge TV show where you had to eat gross fear crap. factor. Fear factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got his podcast, which blew the fuck up. So really, he had, what was that, four fallbacks? Yeah. Right? And they were all extensions of his communication skill set. So would you call those a failure? I think he did pretty fucking well. Yeah. No. 
I agree. And, and and once you broke break it down like that, I can see where I can see where you're coming from, where it's like just because you have a fallback plan doesn't mean you're gonna be less successful than if you didn't. And I don't think it's fall back. I think it's due in tandem with. It should be something that you also enjoy. I'm not suggesting you be a, your goal in life is to be the world's greatest podcast guy mm. and also be a greeter at Walmart. Like that's not fun for you. Yeah. Uh, if, you know, if it's something else that you're into, uh, what I don't see, I don't know what that is on the back behind you, but it looks like it's, it's animated. Is that a cartoon well, behind you? No, that is. Uh, I'm a big wrestling fan, music fan, superhero fan. It's just all kind of different artwork. Who knows what else you can find if you find the other things that you're good at that you enjoy. Maybe you suck at drawing, but maybe you could use your podcastiness and turn around and be someone who does stuff at local wrestling. I don't know. Or you could get into real estate. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like it yeah, doesn't yeah. have to be. One thing is great and the other thing is just crap. You don't have to be a bag boy at the local grocery store. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If I were your kids, I'd be getting a pep talk from you probably every other day. Oh, I'd beat your ass. <laughs> really? <laughs> like you're what I'm just, just being skeptical. Yeah. So how are you as a parent? Are you kind of tough or like, are you just kind of very lenient? Like, or does, or does it differ? I don't have kids, bro. Oh, you don't? Okay. I just, just assumed. It's a good, no, it's a good question. No, I, I don't have any kids. What do you, do you want kids? I'm too fucking old, buddy. I'm 51. I'm not having kids. Yeah, but I mean, look Shut at, hey, look at Alec Baldwin. Come on, man. The dude's 60. Yeah, and do you know the difference between me and Alec Baldwin? Well, you're going to make me say it. He's got more money than you. No shit, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of zeros. It's a lot of zeros, yeah. So let's just say if you were a parent, if you were a parent, not saying you're going to be, but if you had kids, what mm -hmm. type of parent do you think you would be? The kind that you that you grew up with you're going to be like your dad or your mom or are you going to take how they parented you and kind of go a different route uh no i think i'd be i think i'd be a combination of them and a little bit uh of the modern like the thing i i don't think you help kids out by giving them a participation medal i think uh one of the problems kids have nowadays is that they don't get involved in projects or processes processes that are difficult um because that builds self-worth you know mm. um you sit at home and play a video game and don't move and get fat um it's you don't have a good sense of self-worth when you look in the mirror and then you go see what the media puts out there with all these guys with perfect shoulders and ripped abs and you're supposed to compete with that for your sense of self when you look in the mirror that's ridiculous but more importantly than that, it's about what do you build? You know, whether you're building something with your hands or digging in a garden or editing footage, those things are hard to do. And I think that, you know, I grew up, I, my dad was a boxer. So I learned, I started boxing when I was about six years of age. And 
learning how to do things and it being okay that you fail at them. And when I say fail, I don't mean you fall down and you're completely clumsy. I mean, the fact that you slowly work through the process of making it, of understanding how to get better at this thing and challenging yourself and, and becoming more fluent in the martial arts or, or in gardening or in painting or I'm building something or taking care of pets or editing a program or being responsible for the world around you, it gives you a sense of self-worth. Like, as you're aware, not everybody in the world has a podcast. I mean, close to everybody in the world has a close podcast. Close to everybody, about 99.9%. Yeah. But the, here's the thing is like, you have a lot of friends who don't have a podcast, correct? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm assuming you have some viewers, I'm hoping for love of God, but <laughs> probably some members of your family who watch it. And in the beginning, your stuff probably sucked, correct? Oh, without a doubt. Yes, but you kept doing it. Right. And now on this podcast, you are going to edit this and you're going to color correct it and you're going to put some background music and you're going to do some wipes and editor and make it really sexy in the edit. And people are going to look and go like, oh my God, that looks so good. And you're going to be proud of your work because you're not going to waste my time by doing a half-assed job. And you want to have a good reputation of somebody who deserves to have good talent on your podcast. And then the people who look at it and go, oh my goodness, how did you do that? You're going to pat yourself on the back. And all those hours where you sit down on the computer and you make something happen, will have been worth it? Because you will have known, you will have taught yourself what you were capable of doing. And that's the process that I think kids need. I don't think they need to get punched in the face. I don't think they need to be screamed at. I also don't think they need a participate. I don't think they need a participation ribbon for showing up and losing. It's okay to fucking lose. Yeah. It's fine. If you were, if you have any sense of integrity, you lose, you turn around, you congratulate the other person for doing better. And you're like, man, you were great. Wow. Good for you. High five. That's what a real person does. Yeah. And then you go, I'm going to kick your ass next time. I'm going to go train. Or you know what? You're so much better at me than this. I'm out. Dude, I boxed for three years. I started, I started sparring with some of the guys from the Canadian Olympic team. And I got my ass handed to me so fast one time. So fast. And I was at the peak of my game. This dude just lit me up. And I was like, okay. I'm going to go with acting. I'm going to stop boxing. Yeah. <clears throat> because I saw the difference. This guy was a boxer. I was an actor who could box. You understand the difference? Yeah. And I was okay with that. At that moment, I spent three years training for three to five hours a day and had six amateur fights, was getting a little cocky. And this guy just made me look like I was standing still. And I got a real wake up call. I was like, there's something I'm never going to be able to do. And that's all right. That doesn't make me less of a person. That just means that that guy should go do that thing. And I'm going to go do this. No one gave me a fucking blue ribbon and said, oh, attaboy, sweetheart. Good for you for participating. No, just grow the fuck up, contribute to society and go do something else. Yeah. I like how you and I have 
something in common um, because I live by, I have this piece of paper in my underwear drawer. And I every time I go get a shower in the morning or at night, I read this piece of paper and I heard it from Steve Harvey. And it is a list of what you want to do. Like, okay, I want to be a successful podcaster. So that's on the piece of paper where it says, become a successful podcaster, but do it right. And I read that every time I get a pair of underwear, get a pair of socks. And I realized you did that too with a business card when you thumbtacked it to the door and you looked at it, you're like, you know what? I'm going to be better than that right there because I don't want to be an extra in a movie. I'm better than being an extra in, in, in a non-ego type of way. Right. Yeah. Your, your audience doesn't know what you're talking about right now, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, do you, you want do. me to extract that? Uh, sure. If you want to, sure. I, sure. Uh, so when I first got to Los Angeles, I was working on a project called the 777 and it was the, uh, it was a thesis film for a, what's it called? The, for a film school, a big film school here in Los Angeles. And so I'm working on this film and I've got a small supporting role, but I'm in it every single day. And I fit, and I mean, I'm literally driving my motorcycle in the rain from Pasadena 30 minutes each way. You gotta understand, like, I don't have rain gear. So I took a, a garbage bag, cut a hole in the neck, put my arms through it, tape it off, drive in the rain, which is dangerous as fuck. And then I get there and do all the thing. And so I'm shooting all this stuff and I'm busting my ass and this doesn't pay any money. I'm just trying to meet people and so forth. And the sound guy comes up to me, he goes, Hey Zach, I want to talk to you. I've been noticing your work. You're really, really good. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I'm going to get my shot now. Because I've been talking to some people about you and you should really talk to them. Give them, give them my name. And he, he writes, he's got his name on the back of this card and he hands it to me. And uh, I look at it and it's an extras casting agency. And to be clear, I've never been an extra in my life. Not because, um, not because I look down upon extras at all, but the process is when you're first learning the industry, you might want to get in as an extra so you understand how sets are run, the nomenclature and the terminology and how the whole infrastructure works, you know, the pecking order, all that stuff. But because I grew up around it, um, because my mom's an actress, I grew up on sets. It's not something I needed to do. So I never did that. And I had already been acting for 15 years at that point. And then this gentleman handed me this and it said, the extras agency on the back. And it about broke my fucking heart at that moment. Like I, it really made me realize how far I needed to climb up from where I had been. Because when I left Toronto, I had a TV series that we did 54 episodes. I made 150 grand a year and I'm 23 years old. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I made money and that's, that's 150 grand a year in 1993. So that's good fucking money. And I was respected. So I looked at that card, my heart was breaking and I looked up at him and I said, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I shook his hand and I got on the motorcycle, went home and I was living with my dad and I was living, sharing a bedroom with my little brother who was, God, he's 13 years younger than me. So he had to be, let's say 12. So a little booger of a kid. Just like, you know, as filthy as little boys get, 
that's as filthy as my little brother was. Everything <laughs> gross. And, like literally going from having my own condo on the beach mm. in Toronto to a pull-out bed underneath in my brother's room mm. and waking up in with puppy dog shit on me and a turtle, like yeah. ridiculous dude. Um, and so, yeah, I took that card with the extras agency and I pinned it to the door. So every time I left that room, I looked at it, I was like, no, I'm better than that. And I need to prove it. So what, well, how do I prove that? How do I make that happen? So yeah, that was the process of how I kept on pushing and kept on pushing and still do push now. Do you think you ever proved it to yourself that you were better than that? Because I know, I know how a lot of people work. They're like, you know, I'm a perfectionist, so it's not going to be great to me until it's actually 100% perfect. I think, I think it's, um, I think there are certain things that I've done that in those moments, it's all come together exactly the way I think it should have. Uh, and then there's other stuff that I've created um, like movies that I've directed or films that I've written that I look at and think, well, that part was perfect. This part's needed to work. And, you know, you can't, you can't look at all of it and try to give it one value because they take different levels of effort. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you're wearing a t-shirt, a baseball hat, glasses, and earphones. Uh, do you look like you should be going to the prom right now or going to a high-end restaurant? No, you look relaxed. Right. So you're not going to compare, and I'm wearing a shirt, I'm wearing pajama pants because I've been working at my house all day. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> High five. There, there you go. Um, so I think you have to take it on a piece-by-piece -piece basis. Like you have to look at the details and choose how to make each one as good as you can and each opportunity as good as you can. And you can't let perfection be the enemy of good. Because if you won't do anything until it's perfect, then you'll never start. Mm. You know, Muhammad Ali didn't get in the ring and become heavyweight champion in the world on his first fight. Yeah. He was fighting for years. So you gotta keep fighting and every time you fight, you learn. But you, your attitude always has to be that you're going to do your best knowing that it will never be the best and knowing that there's something that you can learn from the process. Mm -hmm. I had Jason Marsden on a couple of months ago and we were talking about the effects of child acting. And I want to know from a child actor's perspective, what, what, what did you ever have that, mentality state and I say mentality a lot but I just want to know what's going on in your brain at the time did you ever have that state of okay this could be my one and only movie I could get up there and it could be this and I could be done and I'll have to accept that no you never lived with that no. did, did, but did, did but did it ever cross your mind as a eight nine ten year old like it that went what like that you could just be thrown into this one role and that could be what you'd be known of. Like, for example, Alfonso Ribeiro, he's known as Carlton from Fresh Prince. 
he hates talking yeah. about it. But isn't that? Yeah, but yeah. is it? But I mean, the reality of Matt. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I didn't have that problem with um, with Scott Farkas because when the movie came out, nobody cared. Um, I had that issue a little bit with Dave from Titus uh, because it went for three seasons, but then it was never. It, we didn't go past that. You know, I'm kind of known as the lovable asshole, the likable asshole. Um, and I've done comedy and action and horror and drama, um, sci-fi. I've done pretty much every genre there is. I've never felt um, pigeonholed as one character. And also, you know, there's a different thing, too. It's like you're an actor. You're getting hired to do a job. If it's going to be so iconic that the world thinks that you are that person forever, well, then that's the situation you're in. You can always decide not to do the job. That's up to you. Um, but rarely is that a consideration when you're in the process of auditioning for the job. Out of all the roles that you've taken, what of y'all your co-stars, et cetera, et cetera, who was that one person that just taught you the most of how to be a, how to, how to be a good actor? You learn different things from different, different actors like I right. learned when I did the TV show Titus I learned a lot about comedy timing and rehearsal and practicing and and process of how one gets connected to the comedy inside the words um that was an incredible education from Jack Kenny Brian Hargrove and Christopher Titus Stacy Keach uh David Shatra um amazing performers when you do martial arts you learn a lot from fighting guys better than you so mm. the challenge is to you know throw punches upwards but not get your clock cleaned <coughs> excuse me i think the uh process is one of constantly trying to um find a lesson in the world around you that you can incorporate, that you can step past your own ego to try and achieve a higher sense of accomplishment um, mm. by letting go of your past and trying and accepting a new opportunity, whether it be in your own performance value or in your writing style or in the way you take a note from somebody who's giving you a suggestion. Uh, I think that's hopefully what you get to do all the time until you die. Yeah. You mentioned that when you were 23, you were making $120,000 a year living in LA. Now I've never. No, that was in Toronto. That I was, was making that money before I moved to LA. And when I moved to LA, I started over again with basically nothing. Okay. Okay. All right. Got you. Now, are you the type of person that doesn't like to talk about what you're mostly known for? No, I'm fine. That's why I'm on, I do podcasts around Christmas, buddy. <laughs> so, so you wouldn't be opposed to me ask, uh, talking about Christmas story. Yeah, go ahead. I figured I would just ask. Um, I want to know if this is true. Uh, there's a couple of things here that I want to talk about. I want to know if it's a uh, fact or fiction. Um, so obviously you just mentioned that Christmas story was not a big story or was not a big hit. Uh, when it came out, 
I was told that the Turner classic movies took it and they just played it over and over and over until it initially became a classic. Is that kind of what happened or is that wrong? Um, so what happened is a Christmas story came out in theaters in 1983. Uh, it lasted for two weeks. Then it was uh, re-released the following Christmas. Um, and I think it lasted another two weeks. It never did huge box office. It did okay. And um, it never got raging reviews, the first release, but it actually started to get very high reviews, the second release. And then there was something, you got to remember, this is the 80s. Um, and then it got released on VHS. So nowadays you go on your smart TV or Netflix and you got 10 zillion fucking shows to watch. Um, but back then a VHS cassette, a good one, three quarter track would have been 80 to a hundred dollars. So it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, like you can't even find VHS, but if you do, they're like, you know, three for $5 or whatever, cause they're considered garbage. But back then a VHS cassette machine would cost you three to $500. That's a lot of money back then. So not everybody had these things. That's a lot and of money so now. People, yeah, it's not cheap, right? So people would collect these movies. So they, so if someone had a, a library of all these VHS cassette films, it was impressive. But most people didn't have a lot of them. They'd have like The Godfather and The Wizard of Oz or whatever was their new thing. And they had a Christmas story and people would trade these things. This was before, really even before video, video stores. And so they were trading them back and forth and they'd be like, oh, I bought this because I love this movie so much. And it started to build a underground black market reputation. And then it came out in video stores and that built, built, built. And then uh, MGM sold off their library to Turner uh, Broadcast Television, the TNT, yeah, Turner Network Television. And over Christmas time, uh, typically back in those days, there is no advertising around Christmas because no one's watching TV. So, so you know that the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? You know what that is? Yes. So you know that it became like America's Christmas movie because yes. it was played all the time. The reason why that happened is because the uh, producer director um, failed to put to file for the copyright on the movie, which means that you didn't anybody could play that movie and they didn't have to pay the creator of the movie to pay to run that film. Gotcha. Which meant that it was free. So all these TV stations are playing this movie because it doesn't cost them anything. And it's kind of Christmassy, kind of massive depressing. And they're not getting paid any advertising because no one's watching TV. So they might as well have something going. So remember, TV runs off of advertising. So that's why It's a Wonderful Life became a huge cultural icon. So when Turner got a Christmas story, this is still the time when nobody watches TV over Christmas and it was a cable network. So who the fuck is watching that? So they're like, ah, we own it. It doesn't cost us anything. We might as well run a 24-hour marathon. Who's going to care? There we go. Well, everybody loved it because it's a great movie. So it was this perfect combination of like 
a perfect storm. You know, MGM goes bankrupt, Turner buys it, has a cable outlet, needs to play something that doesn't cost any money, and then 24 hour. And here's a Christmas story that's a period piece that works for kids, works for grandparents, works for parents. It's about Christmas. Oh, so it works for everybody. And it's a great movie. And so now everybody's seeing it as 24 hours, 24 hours. And it's the only film in the history of the world of cinema to increase its viewership every single year on a 24 hour marathon. They tried to do it with um, Wizard of Oz, it failed. They tried to do it with the, uh, the Sound of Music, it failed. They tried to do it with all these other films, it won't work, it doesn't work. The viewership drops off, people can't stand it. With A Christmas Story, they run it 24 hours a day. Uh, the advertising goes through the fucking roof. More people watch the eight o'clock um, screening of A Christmas Story than watch the Super Bowl. And still they sell out of all the DVDs. I think it's because the movie is a timeless classic because Bob Clark was an amazing director um, and Gene Shepard was a great writer and the cast was perfect for their roles. Uh, and the whole crew in front and behind the camera came together perfectly. Um, and because of all those things that work together in conjunction. So it really was lightning in a bottle and I don't think you could manufacture it again. I don't think, I don't think anybody could do that on purpose. Yeah. Speaking of it running 24 hours on Christmas, it, for some reason I see them run it 24 hours on Thanksgiving. Um, but yeah. I wonder, are there any residuals that are coming to the actors for that? Yeah, it ain't nothing that's going to blow your hair back. I make about $1,800 Canadian every two years. That's about wow. uh, $1,800 American. Um, I have a Canadian account that I um, that I leave my Canadian currency in, and it's in, it's basically there for my mom in case she falls down or hurts herself. So, you know, $1,300 is nothing to sneeze at. But $1,300 is not going to change your fucking life. And if you got then pay a cross country tax on that, which is another 25 to 40%. <laughs> and you look yeah. at Whereas yeah. if I pretend it doesn't exist and I leave it in an account and my mom falls down and, and hurts herself, then she's got money to take care of herself. So it doesn't make any difference in my life. Uh, I want to know fact or fiction on this. Um, when you and Ralphie, Obviously, you weren't real fighting. You're not going to let kids fight during a scene. Yeah. But his mittens were frozen, and they were actually hitting you in the face while he was fake punching you. Is that right? Yep, absolutely correct. Yeah, it was like getting hit by frozen pork cutlets. Yeah, because – and how many times do you have to do that take where those mittens are hitting you in the face? It's, it's – uh, it's 40 years ago. I don't really remember anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Let's say four or five. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was two of your lifespans ago, roughly. So I don't remember. Yeah. That was a dumb question on my part, but. Um, that is good. Is it true you auditioned for the sidekick bully instead of the, uh, the main? Uh, 
kind of uh, the uh, the role of Scott Farkas was originally the sidekick. Um, he was always called Scott Farkas, but he just had the other lines. So when I showed up on set, okay, the director saw me and swapped the lines. Okay, I got you. I I read that you actually were bullied in school, which a lot I think at least 95% of everybody is bullied in a life. Probably it's probably closer. I mean, but I wonder when you took the role as a bully, did you was it hard to be a bully or did you just take what you were getting and giving it in that role? Pretty much. It was my way to make fun of the kids who used to beat the crap out of me. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, I can imagine being, what were you, 13, 14, 12 in a row? 13. Yeah. It, yeah. That's a rough age for, that's a rough age for kids. 13, you know, they're right there on the cusp, almost like, like you said earlier, 14, 15, you think they're becoming a man in their mind and they think that, you know, what, yep. what would you give advice what kind of advice would you give for people that are going through the bullying that you and I and everyone else has went through? Man, it's so different nowadays. People are just such pussies. They don't uh, go face to face <laughs> on uh, social media. They're just such pussies. Um, you know, if you're getting bullied, I'd say any type of physical training is good if you can. Um, boxing, MMA fencing, archery, anything that connects your body to your mind, Tai Chi, Kung Fu, I don't care. Understanding your body and your brain and connecting those two things together helps give you a sense of balance. And so you won't feel so uncomfortable in your own skin while you're in a time when your body's growing and you're, it's going to be as hard as possible anyways. Um, get it especially if you're being harassed online, just, just delete and block those people as quickly as possible and find groups like, don't become an incel, all right? Like there, there's no reason to become an incel. Don't become a crazy person. Don't get on Chan 5 or Chan 8 or whatever that is. Don't lose your mind and live in a basement and start you know, putting together AR-15s and going on killing sprees. That's psychotic right mm -hmm. just just find no matter what you're into whether it's comic books or music or dancing there is a group out there that is exactly like you and they would love to talk to you about stuff that you enjoy yeah reach out just reach out yeah if you're having that hard of time hit me up on twitter and dm me uh there's no reason to be that upset it will pass. Look, Zach, I want to talk to you about a couple more things before I let you go, um, if that's cool with you. Okay. Um, so, and if you don't want this in here, I can edit this out in the editing stages. Um, when we were trying to book this podcast, you mentioned that your dad had Alzheimer's. And I wonder, what's the biggest thing that you've learned since that's happened? Because he's living with you, am I right? No, he's not. Oh, okay, no, okay. I got that misunderstood. Uh, I've been taking care of him uh, earlier this year and we, I moved him into a full-time assisted living facility out in Oregon with uh, like a mile away from my sister. Um, 
he was uh, diagnosed with stage four dementia, Alzheimer's, and uh, very quickly degraded. Um, it's not, he needs 24 hour supervision. It's not something where you can just let him wander around the house and do whatever he wants. Um, he's now at a point where he can't read a digital clock and he's having, he's been reading books his whole life. And now he reads one book in the same two or three pages over and over again. Um, it's very hard. It's, I fucking hate Alzheimer's. Um, if I could murder Alzheimer's, I would do it upfront and personal with a knife. Yeah. And I would make it as slow as possible. I would want to see that bitch squirm. Um, anybody who's going through it, my hat is off to you. It is a living nightmare. Um, and for those people who work for those assisted living places, uh, uh, thank you. You guys are heroes. Um, it's a really hard one, dude. It's really, really hard to talk about. Um, if anybody is in the mood to donate to the Alzheimer's Association, owls.org, please do. They do amazing things. Uh, they, you know, I was very blessed. Uh, my sister is a genius when it comes to working through paperwork. I was just the lifter monkey who was uh, taking care of all his physical stuff. But my sister was the genius behind helping him find a place to live and organizing his, his finances. And um, so I feel very blessed that I had that support and that family doing that. But, you know, there's a lot of people don't have that opportunity uh, and they can really use the help. And uh, if anybody is out there feeling generous and wants to do something lovely, uh, please donate to Alzheimer's. And there's a lot of great people out there who are, trying to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. And it's a, it's a sadness that would be really lovely if you can help out. Um, but I don't want to go down this path too much because it gets pretty fucking dark. Cause it's yeah. Not over. Yeah. My grandma went, th- I understand my grandma went through it with uh, her dad. And so I, I understand fully what you're going through. Cause I saw it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. Well then you get it, dude. Yeah. I hundred percent. I get it. Last question for you. I was reading this book and it's by Malcolm Gladwell and it's titled David and Goliath. And it's about, I love Malcolm Gladwell, dude. I'm, I'm actually reading the tipping point right now. I got it right here on my desk. Fantastic. By the way, I look great book. Great book. Outliers Outliers is fantastic. That is my, I got it right here on my record player. That's the next one to read. Um, I read blink. I read that one first and then it went yeah. to David and Goliath and then Tipping Point, Outlier. And then there's a couple more I don't have that I'm looking to get. Um, but yeah, Malcolm Gladwell is probably my favorite nonfiction writer of all time. Um, I just love how he can take people's stories and turn them in. But like Blink, Blink was about going with your gut. And the Tipping Point is about how an idea can manifest into this big giant virus or whatever you want to have it. Yeah, build a cultural momentum. Yeah. Like a Christmas story, for example. There you go. Christmas story built a cultural momentum. And literally uh, around his 20th anniversary, that was to me the tipping point when everybody in the the country was like, yeah, a Christmas story. Because before that, people were like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe. But yeah, it, it had its tipping point. Yeah. 
And uh, the thing about David and Goliath is that that is about going from one standpoint and then instead of going at it the way you're supposed to go at it, you go the opposite direction. Like, okay, quickly here, um, when David, the, it goes to the story of David and Goliath. Everybody knows the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was killed by a stone that David threw. Right. Well, he goes into the, and he, this is what's cool to me. One of the coolest books Malcolm has written is he goes into depth and actually does research about why Goliath did not see David coming in the armor because Goliath had disease in his eyes and he could only see like six feet in front of him. So he was not okay. there. So when David showed up, he was like, oh my God, it's actually a five foot guy instead of a massive nine foot guy. And turned out Goliath had the same disease Andre the Giant had, et cetera, et cetera. Well, David was told, I'm not going to say the name because I don't really know who was, he was told by someone, hey, you need to go in here in this armor and you need to, you're going to fight him sword to sword, battle to battle. You're going to fight him. And he goes, no, I'm not. I'm going to go a different route because he's not going to see it coming. And right. he went just flip-flop sandals in a satchel with a stone, <laughs> hit him in the forehead and he went down. And that was the end of David and Goliath. So I wonder what is your David and Goliath story? What was one situation you took? And you were like, people want me to go this way, but you know what? I'm going to go what opposite direction. If that makes sense. Cause I know that was a lot of, I know that was a worded question, but. No, I, I liked it. I, I, I liked the reference. That was very interesting. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. A couple of times. So when I was first in Los Angeles, I uh, would get the breakdowns, which are descriptions of all the TV shows and movies being cast. And that was illegal to get the breakdowns, but I would pay money under the table to get them faxed to me back in the day when we had fax machines. And I would put together a list of them and I would drive into my agency from Pasadena, half hour drive to Burbank. And in the rain, summer, whatever the fuck it was. And I would have extra clothes on me. So I get off the motorcycle, park the bike, go to the bathroom, change out of my motorcycle gear into something interesting. Uh, so I'd look like a sports guy or like I was in a suit or if I was something else and I'd walk into the agency like, oh, I just happened to be in the neighborhood. And I would bring them Krispy Kreme donuts because this way they'd always see me and they'd be thinking about me and I'd be leaving them donuts. And so now I'm hanging out with the assistants, leaving them donuts, and I was wearing this cool suit. And I had, uh, the other day I was dressed like a rapper, and this day, and they're like, oh, look at that Zach, isn't he an interesting guy who's always here? And trust me, nobody says no to Krispy Kreme donuts, brother. You walk into a bunch of secretaries, male or female, you put down donuts, people are going for the Krispy Kreme donuts. Can I interrupt so you I real quick? Yeah, I want to. This sounds very interesting to me because I wonder. Because as as I'm sitting here listening, I wonder where your story is going to go, because this reminds me of one an episode of The Office and two the story about the man that rang the bell, and the dog got fed. So every time the man rang the bell, the dog knew the food was coming, and so he kept going oh, and like going. 
You're talking about Pavlov. Yes, Pavlov. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Every time he rang the bell, the dog got fed to the point that when he rang the bell, the dog drooled. Right. 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 So, yes. Okay. So here's what's going. So I kept on doing that. And I built up a relationship with the people in the office so that when I showed up and I called, I wasn't just asking for something. When I showed up, I was giving something. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes, I got you. Um, when I was a kid, I, I lived in eight different, I went to eight different schools before junior high and I traveled a lot. We moved to different cities and towns. And one of the things I would always do is I would shovel other, the snow off of other people's walks for basically free. I'd always give them the first one for free. And then I go, no, no, no charge, no charge. Knowing that they feel so guilty that they give me more money the second time. And also I would do it for the stores around our house because we lived in pretty bad neighborhoods that would have food like a deli or something. Okay. And that way I'd say, Hey, do you have any leftover Dale bread? Cause usually that goes for pennies and they'd be like, yeah, I'm like, well, can I buy it for a nickel? And they'd be like, no, you can just have it because a lot of times we went hungry. Mm -hmm. So what I learned was that if you treated people well, they felt like they should treat you well back. Whereas if you just ask for something, people get annoyed. So now I'm going into the agency, changing my outfit, bringing Krispy Kreme donuts. What a lovely fella. And I'm getting the breakdowns like I told you before. So one day I'm coming in and I've got a list of all these different roles I wanted to audition for. And I photocopied them and listed them down. And I walk into every agent's office and they're looking at me like what the fuck are you doing but the uh, secretaries were okay with it because i was always in there and i went to one agent the next agent the next day and the third fourth one was sue wold and i gave her a list and i said how come i'm not auditioning for any of these and she goes that one went to a name that one went to a black kid that one went to a jewish kid that one went to a name this one I don't know why you didn't audition for that. Hold on. She picked up the phone, called the casting director. And she goes, would he pre-read? That means would I come in and just audition for the casting directors? And she looks at me, would he pre-read? And I went, she goes, yes, he'll pre-read. He'll be in tomorrow, tomorrow at two o'clock. Absolutely. I'm so sorry, Zach. There you go. And that was Titus. Wow. That was the show Titus. So by doing that, that, by doing that technique and treating people that well and having that access, that made me millions of dollars. Yeah. I would have kept the millions of dollars if I had had a prenup with my ex-wife, but that's a lesson <laughs> for another time. I got you. <laughs> well, look, man. I, I I've taken enough enough of your time, and I really do am appreciative of the hour and so you gave me. Um, so real quick, give all anything you want to promote your socials, whatever you got new projects coming out. That's coming out the first of the so, first of the year. So okay, so projects. I got a movie coming out called Patsy Lee and the Keepers of the Five Kingdoms. That should be out in the uh, second quarter of 2021. It's The Goonies meets Dark Crystal, starring James Hong from Big Trouble in Little China. It's a magical adventure family movie. It's a lot of fun. Um, so look for that. 
on my social media, go to, and are you going to be able to put these links up? Uh, Absolutely. Yep. Add a boy, add a guy. So go to my Twitter and my Instagram, uh, Instagram at total Zach Ward. That's T O T A L Z A C K W A R D. That's the same name for both of them. And if you want to help me support my dad in Alzheimer's, um, I'm doing cameos. So you can go to cameo.com slash Darth Farkas. Yes, it's as good as it sounds. As if Scott Farkas was a Sith Lord. Come on. So Darth, E-A-R-T-H, Farkas, F-A-R-K-U-S. So cameo.com backslash Darth Farkas. Hit me up there. Get a fantastic present for your friends or family or yourself, whatever you like. And uh, if you want to sign an autograph photo, again, money from my dad, um, go to my Facebook. You'll see a picture of me looking like a jackass. But those are all my social medias. Zach, again, I appreciate you. And um, hopefully we treated you well over here on the podcast. You did great, man. Congratulations. Keep kicking ass and uh, good getting to know you here. Maybe one day I'll be like, I was on that dude's podcast when he was just starting out. Well, it's been four years. So <laughs> starting out was a long time ago. But yeah, I mean, you're well, still starting out. So good for you, man. Yeah. But look, hopefully I'll have you back on in the near future and uh, we'll talk about Star Wars or something. I didn't realize you're a big uh, Star Wars nerd fan like I am. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm kind of I like, the eh, too. <laughs> I like the old Star Wars. The new one, me, not a fan. Not a fan. Yeah. Um, all right, though, brother. You have a great one. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, Merry Thank Christmas you. to all. To all a good night. All right, man. Appreciate it. Right back to you. Merry Christmas. Uh, Happy New Year. All that good stuff. Appreciate you. See you guys. Take care.